how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is 1st and 2nd Corinthians, part 1. One of the temptations we all have is to idealize the past and to put on special spectacles and look back to a golden age, either in our own life or the life of the world, when everything was much better than it is now. Well, nostalgia isn't what it used to be, but Christians do the same thing. And many Christians look back to a certain age in church history which they think was ideal and try and relive it. For example, some people go back to the Welsh Revival. If you go to Wales, they talk about 1904 and, oh, it was wonderful in those days. Others go further back to the Methodist Revival in the 18th century. Then there's quite a large number of Christians in England who idealize the Puritan era. If only we were like the Puritans again. Others go back to the Reformation. There's a resurgence of interest in the Anabaptists of the 16th century at the moment, and it's influencing a lot of Christians in this country. They go even further back. When were the good old days, the days of the Church Fathers, or the New Testament period? Surely the Church was ideal in the New Testament period. Well, it wasn't. The Church of the New Testament had problems. They had pressures from outside, but they had big problems from inside. I want to say something right away. The church was never destroyed by pressure from outside. That just makes the church stronger. But problems inside can destroy a church. And when we turn to the Corinthian letters of Paul, we're turning to a church with big problems. There is no church that Paul founded that had bigger problems than Corinthians. But thank God for those problems. Without them, we wouldn't have had these two marvelous letters. We wouldn't have 1 Corinthians 13, that matchless song of love. We wouldn't have 1 Corinthians 15, which is uh, the earliest account of the resurrection appearances of the Lord in the New Testament, while many of the witnesses were still alive. And it's earlier than any of the four Gospels. So we wouldn't have any of this. Now, mind you, the church had big problems. They were very deeply divided. They had parties and cliques following different ministers. They had immorality of the worst kind. It was openly known, not just in the church, but in the whole of Corinth, that in this church there was a man living in sin with his mother, or possibly his mother-in-law, but certainly in a forbidden relationship, which even pagans would have condemned. They were getting drunk at the Lord's table. Fancy that, people arriving for communion and scoffing all the bread before other people came and drinking all the wine and lying drunk so that by the time the congregation arrived, there were drunk church members around the communion table. Can you imagine it? You and I would have written off such a church. We'd have said, it's no good, don't go near it. Paul did not. He didn't write them off. He sought to bring them through to a better position. They had all kinds of aggressive feminism. There's nothing new under the sun, is there? All right, let's uh, then look at the churches of Corinth. But first, I think we want to look at the city. Its position not only affected the city, but affected the church very deeply. It's on that narrow isthmus of land which joins the mainland of Greece to the Peloponnese. 
And it's a very narrow strip of land there. And that's very significant because ships invariably came this way. And if they were big ships, they discharged their cargo at Corinth. And the cargo was carried a few miles over the land and put on another ship to go east. The smaller boats were actually pulled out of the water and pulled on rollers across a little road across there and then launched again. Why on earth then didn't ships go around here? Because this is a very dangerous part of the Mediterranean Sea. It's like Cape Horn and it really is dangerous and to avoid, especially in the winter storms, to avoid going round that cape, ships came in here and either had their cargo taken across or even the boats manhandled across and put back in the water. So Corinth was a key port. Actually Corinth was about two miles from the sea and it had its own port, Lycium, here. And there was a double city wall two miles from the port up to the city of Corinth to protect the, the road to the port. Just outside Corinth was a mountain, Mount Acrocorinthus here. And from the top of that mountain, well it was only 2,000 feet high, but from the top of it you could actually see Athens 40 miles away. Now I like to parallel cities in the ancient world with cities of today. This is Edinburgh, that's Glasgow. Apologies to all <laughs> Scots here, but in fact this was the sort of refined city with the university and where the philosophers lived and so on. This was where the festival of arts was held. Whereas this was the port, uh, the shipbuilding place, and the Glaswegians lived here and the Edinburgh people lived here. So that gives you a kind of feel. So Athens and Corinth were real rivals and again like Scotland they were at either side of the narrow bit of land that joined one part to another. Well that gives you a little feel of the place. Archaeologists uh, have discovered a great deal in Athens, in Corinth, uh, especially since the earthquake of 1858 which revealed some of the ruins. And the main picture here, forget this for a moment, is the main street of Corinth as it was in Paul's day. It's all been excavated now. And they've found the Bema, the judgment seat where Paul uh, was judged. They found all sorts of things, including the Jewish synagogue. So uh, they've really revealed an awful lot and everything tallies with Luke's account in uh, the book of Acts. There's the mountain, 2,000 feet high, from which you could see Athens, 40 miles away. The port is down this way. Nowadays, of course, they don't manhandle ships over the top. They've cut this gigantic um, deep ravine, the Corinthian Canal right through and an ocean-going liner can just squeeze through. If you go cruising in the eastern Mediterranean you may well go through this uh, canal now. Nero tried to cut the canal way back in uh, Paul's day but he failed and it wasn't until the 19th century that this deep cut was actually made that cuts off northern Greece from the Peloponnese. So that's the background. Another thing that we need to know is that this was actually the second city of Corinth. There were two cities. The first one went back a long way and it was very wealthy and terribly pagan. They worshipped, for example, Poseidon, the god of the sea, and above all, Aphrodite, 
they had a huge temple here originally, which had 2,000 priestesses. They were actually prostitutes, and worship was quite exciting in those days. You simply went and had intercourse with a priest. And uh, you can imagine the effect that had. Apart from the fact that being a port with sailors, well, enough said. In fact, to say that a woman was a Corinthian was to call her a prostitute. And to Corinthianize became an actual verb in the Greek language, meaning to have promiscuous sex. So that was the reputation it had. It was a bad city. And incidentally, the place of all those priestesses was going to affect the Corinthian church because the women wanted to do things that men were doing. And the background explains a great deal of why Paul concentrates on uh, men and women relationships in Corinthian correspondence. Well, now that city was destroyed. It was uh, a bad city. It was destroyed. And the Romans destroyed it 150 years before Christ. And then later, not long before Christ came, they rebuilt it and repopulated it with a very different population, mostly freed men. That means ex-slaves who had either bought their freedom or earned it in some way. And so they were ex-slaves who populated the city. But again, because of its position, they made a lot of money. It became wealthy, trading obviously, and it became again an immoral seaport. But it meant that there were very few noble or well-educated people. It was full of self-made wealthy traders, self-made men. Well now, that again affects the Corinthian church membership. Paul says to the church members, not many noble among you not many high-born. You're very ordinary people. You're from the bottom of the social heap. And they were. But they were not poor. They were good traders. They were wealthy. They'd made a lot of money. But they were people who'd worked up from the bottom, as it were, by their own efforts. Ex-slaves now trading in the seaport. Now, all that background is fairly important, both the social background and the moral background crept into the church. Snobbery is very widespread among those who are not truly high-born. Do you know what I mean? Those who've climbed up the social ladder by their own efforts tend to be the worst kind of snobs, don't they? And uh, think they're high and mighty because they've done it by their own efforts. The, the truly high-born are usually quite humble people, but the snobs are those who've worked their way up themselves. And the, that kind of snobbery invariably begins to compare minister with minister and begins to form cliques and divisions in a church. See how the background is coming into the church. It happens with all our churches. We've all got a background and we come to Christ. You don't immediately lose all your background and you bring it into the church and that creates problems which are not really spiritual problems but social problems. See, and there are social problems in churches in England, don't let's fool ourselves. And there are moral problems because of our background. We were each brought up to regard different things as right and wrong. And when you get it together, you know, some Christians say it's wrong to touch alcohol, some say it's okay, and so it goes on. And some places like Norway, the Christians smoke like factory chimneys, and, and other places they don't. And these differences of moral behavior are often due to background and not due to principle. And you've got to learn to live together 
as Christians with your different backgrounds and upbringing. All that kind of thing comes out very well in the Corinthian correspondence. The two biggest battles in any church, however, are these. How to keep the church in the world and how to keep the world out of the church. And most problems pastorally can be put under one of those two heads, and we're going to see that particularly here. You realise that the first city was very Greek, but the second city was very Roman. It was still just as immoral, but it was a different kind of culture. And it's the Roman culture that was quite strong in Corinth. The Roman law was the law in Corinth. And that emphasis on law meant that some of the church members in Corinth were actually going to law against one another. And litigation was very, very common in Corinth. And that had crept into the church. So actually you had church members taking other church members to court and suing them. And all this is very reminiscent of a self-made community with people rising up the ladder by their own efforts and by their own money-making. Now we've a further complication. Not only were there two cities here, but Paul wrote four letters to the two cities or to the city there was in his day, and we've only got two of them. And I'm going to complicate things very much in your minds by telling you that the first letter to the Corinthians is actually his second letter to the Corinthians, and the second letter to the Corinthians is actually his fourth letter to the Corinthians. And there were two others which we've lost, and what we know of them, we're rather glad that we have lost them. One was a very hasty letter, which uh, Paul perhaps later regretted writing. He acknowledges he wrote in haste and he was, he'd written in too much of a hurry. And the other was a very hot letter, and he acknowledges that it was a bit too hot. So we've lost the hot letter and the hasty letter. But let me try and um, put it all together for you, if we can, and it is going to be complicated. Paul actually paid three visits to the city, first, second, and third. But he wrote four letters, the first letter, the second letter, the third, and the fourth. And meanwhile, he sent delegates to the church with his letters and to try and sort things out. He first sent Timothy with the second letter, which is R1 Corinthians. Isn't it complicated? So if you just write two instead of one and four instead of two, you're right. So he sent Timothy. Timothy, I'm afraid, was too timid, and he left the church in a worse state than he found it. And he came back and reported to Paul, they're worse than ever. They just didn't respond to my approach. Titus was made of sterner stuff, and we, we'll find that when we study the letters to Timothy and Titus. Titus was tough, whereas Timothy was timid. And so Paul, after Timothy's visit failed, sent Titus and Titus succeeded in sorting them out and brought better news back. So there was a constant coming and going. See, by this time Paul had left Corinth and uh, was very busy elsewhere. He'd been to Jerusalem. He was now back in Ephesus, and it was between Ephesus and Corinth that all this uh, traffic went on. So just running through it, he paid a first visit. After he'd left, 18 months he stayed and got the church going, but it was a problem church from the beginning. After he'd left, a bad report came to him at things going really wrong in the church. 
So he sent the first letter, the hasty one. He scribbled a note to them telling them to put things right. But another report came from a family that came to Ephesus, uh, Chloe's household, brought a further bad report showing that the first letter had had the exact opposite reaction. And a letter written in haste can do that. And they just reacted violently against Paul's first letter. But we don't know. It may be found, part of it, in 2 Corinthians 6 to 7. That's a conjecture. We don't know. But that little bit sounds a bit like that hasty letter, which tried to put things right with a big hammer, you know? And it didn't do it. Sometimes it's like straightening out a dent in your car. If you've got a dent in your car wing, don't take a hammer and hit the middle of the dent at the back. You'll crack it. You have to tap it around the dent and gradually keep on tapping and working towards the centre until it gets it nicely out. Otherwise you do more harm than good. Well, Paul tried the big hammer and it just didn't work. So Chloe's household bought a bad report. So he sent a letter back, or rather he got a letter also brought by three of them. And this letter had a lot of questions they wanted to ask. They wanted to ask about spiritual gifts. They wanted to ask about marriage and divorce. They didn't want to ask about their problems significantly. It's interesting, people always come to you with questions, but not problems. Do you know what I mean? And so Chloe's household had brought the report of the problems, and Stephanus Fortunatus Nicaicus had brought a letter with questions for him. So what he did was, he sent what we know as the first Corinthian letter with Timothy, and that letter from Paul to the Corinthians, brought by Timothy, covered both the questions of the letter and the problems that Chloe's household had told tales about. And that's how we got 1 Corinthians. And you've, when you go through 1 Corinthians, you've got to decide, now, is this an answer to one of their questions? Or is it Paul dealing with one of the tales that this family had told him? All right? Well, that first letter went. And then a report came back to Paul, they're worse than ever. Talk about the care of all the churches. So this time, Paul paid a second visit, and that visit was a disaster. And it just all went wrong. So Paul had his occasions like we do, and everything went wrong. And, and Paul just had to leave. He just couldn't do any good. And so he left. That's when he sent his third letter with Titus. And uh, that third letter we've lost, unless we've got it at the end of 2 Corinthians, chapters 10 to 13. That's a possibility, because that is a very hot section of the second letter. Very hot indeed. Paul resorts to sarcasm. And as every school teacher knows, you've got pretty desperate when you resort to sarcasm. It's the temptation of all teachers to be sarcastic to pupils. But uh, anyway, that third hot letter went with Titus, but Titus was a good man to sort out problems. Paul often left Titus behind to sort out problems. He just seemed to have that, that firmness that said, no nonsense, we're not having any more nonsense. Let's put it right. Timothy was a bit too timid. He said, uh, please, let's try and put it right. But Titus said, come on, we're not standing any more of this. Let's put it right. And he put it right. And now a report came from uh, Corinth that things were very much better. 
and uh, Paul was so delighted that he sent a fourth letter with Titus again, and this is what we call 2 Corinthians. And then Paul finally paid a third and last visit to them, a very happy visit. So he had his first visit when he started them, a second visit which went terribly wrong and he just had to leave. He was just not able to communicate with them. And the third visit which was happy again. Well, now that's the kind of trouble that Paul had with just one church. And we have these two letters, but again, thank God that we have them. The contrast between the two letters is quite marked. The first letter deals with practical issues. The second letter deals with personal insults. The whole of the second letter, Paul is outraged at the way they've insulted him, and they really did. So practical issues, personal insults. The first letter is about what he thought was wrong with them. The second letter is all about what they thought was wrong with him. All right? If you get these things in your mind simply as contrasts, you're more able to understand the letters. The first letter concentrates on church members and how church members ought to behave. But the second letter concentrates on ministers, pastors, leaders, and how they ought to be behaving. So that there's a very clear contrast between the two letters. If you've read them, you must have noticed. Let me run through them again. First letter, practical issues. Second letter, personal insults. First letter, what the Paul thought about the Corinthians. Second letter, what the Corinthians thought about Paul. First letter, how church members ought to be. Second letter, how church ministers ought to be. Well, now that's given you a feel, I hope, of the two letters. So now we can look in more detail at the first letter to Corinth. And uh, we'll look at this one first. Now, let's just uh, try and get the feel of it. It's a sandwich, and we'll forget the bread at the moment, we'll look at the filling, but it's a sandwich between the crucifixion and the resurrection. And it begins with the cross, it ends with the resurrection. Now forget that for the moment. Let's look at what's in the middle. Now I told you that Paul was dealing with two things. First, the report from Chloe's household about what was going wrong, and secondly, the letter brought by three men with questions. So there's a mixture in the middle filling of the sandwich between Paul's dealing with the problems that have been reported to him and Paul answering their questions that had come in the letter. But he doesn't deal with all those and then all those. He sort of darts about a bit, I think, to kind of um, disguise a little that he's slipping in what he's heard. <laughs> Do you see what I mean? So he deals with a series of problems, but something like two-thirds or just, un, just over half the problems he's heard about, and half of them they have asked about. See? Let's take them. The things he's heard, which they haven't mentioned in the letter, but which he knows are happening, division among the members, immorality in the membership, 
members taking each other to court and suing each other, litigation, idolatry creeping in, the relationship of men and women, and particularly their, their role in the church, and this matter of getting drunk at the Lord's Supper and abusing it. You see, in those days the Lord's Supper was a full meal, and it would be nice if it still was actually. And from time to time in our church in Guildford we had a communion where we had a full meal, and on each table for each group of Christians there was a cup and a piece of bread, and at the end of the meal we passed that round. That's how it was done in the early church. It was part of a meal together. Uh, the meal bit dropped largely because of the abuse at Corinth, and the meal was reduced to a little bit of bread and a little bit of wine, and that stopped people eating it all and getting drunk. So I'm afraid we lost something because of Corinth's abuse. I don't know if you realise that. It was meant to be a love feast, a meal, at the end of which we remembered Jesus. And I think it would be lovely if we went back to that, but what happens when you have meals in church? People try to put on a better meal than the last lot put on, you know what I mean? And even house group food tends to enlarge and enlarge until you don't get any prayer, you just eat together, do you know what I mean? We've seen it happen. So these were the problems that Paul had heard about and he writes to put them right. And then they had asked him about marriage and divorce and remarriage, which is the key issue. Incidentally, this Bible never says divorce is a sin, it does say that remarriage is. That's a very important distinction. Uh, they were asking about meat offered to idols because most of the meat that they bought had already been um, involved in a pagan religious ceremony, uh, as for example New Zealand mutton is today. Since New Zealand lost the European market for its mutton, they have to sell the mutton mainly to the Middle East now, uh, where there's a big market for it. Mutton is the favourite meat in Arabia. And of course to do that they now have to have um, Muslim mullahs in New Zealand to supervise the killing of the, of the lambs and to say prayers over the killing of the lambs. So if you buy New Zealand mutton today, you've, you're buying mutton that has already been involved in a Muslim ceremony. Did you understand? It's, that's exactly the problem they had in Corinth, because the slaughterhouse was a religious place and the meat was offered to idols before it was on sale in the marketplace, and that created a conscience problem for Christians. Should we eat meat that has been offered to idols, or should we become vegetarian because of the idolatry that lies behind the slaughtering? Do you follow me? Well, that was a problem. So they asked about marriage and divorce and remarriage, they asked about meat offered to idols, and particularly they were asking about spiritual gifts, because they had a lot of them. In fact, Paul thanked God that they had tongues and prophecy and miracles, they had all the spiritual gifts. Every church member at Corinth had been baptised in the Spirit, and every church member at Corinth had a spiritual gift, and uh, Paul thanked God that they were such a charismatic church. But at the same time they were a carnal church. It's possible to be charismatic and carnal, and that means quite simply to have all the spiritual gifts but to lack the spiritual fruit that you need in order to handle the gifts properly. But they were asking him about that, so at one point in the letter he says, now concerning spiritual gifts. Now since Paul is sometimes dealing with their questions, we have a bit of a problem in these sections, 
as to when Paul is quoting what they say or when he's quoting what he thinks. And that's led to some misunderstanding and some difficulties of interpretation. For example, at one point, Paul says, it is good for a man not to marry. But is he saying it or is he quoting them? And if you read the whole sentence, it is, now for the, now for the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to marry. Do you see? It might mean they were saying, isn't it good for a man not to marry? Because Paul actually then goes on to give a very high view of marriage. So that we've just got to be a little careful. When is he quoting them? For example, uh, when he says, a woman should be silent in church. Is he quoting them or is he quoting himself? Because in this very letter he encourages women to pray and prophesy in church. You see the kind of problem. So I'm just putting that in because we've got to be rather careful with 1 Corinthians when we interpret it and apply it. You've just got to be very careful that you're not quoting something as from Paul where in fact he's quoting what their letter is saying, which he then deals with. You got the picture? But otherwise most of it is fairly straightforward. Well now, applying the book of Corinthians is the problem. And some people make it into a legalistic code and apply it literally and legalistically. Uh, and I want to give an illustration of this. We are not so much slavishly to copy the practice as to find the principle that Paul is applying and then apply that in our situation. You follow me? Let's take one example from outside Corinthians to make plain. It's amazing how many Christians have thought that Jesus wanted us to have a ceremony in church of washing feet. And so churches from time to time have said that next Sunday we're going to have a foot washing and everybody makes quite sure they wash their feet before they come. See? And it becomes a ritual, a ceremony. That to me is legalistic application of Scripture. Let me tell you why Jesus washed the disciples' feet. Because that's the question. Why did he do it? The answer is because their feet were dirty. You got it? That's why he did it. Because in those days, with feet in open sandals and dusty roads, your feet, when you arrived for a meal, were hot, sticky, smelly and filthy. And you couldn't hide them under the tablecloth because you reclined at the meal and lay on your left elbow and ate with your right hand. So your feet were next to the face of the next person. So the first thing that was needed before you stuck your feet under the face of the next guest was to have your feet washed. And the, the second bottom slave in the house took the shoes off and the bottom slave washed the feet. That was the order of uh, merit. That's why John the Baptist said, I'm not worthy to take the shoes off his feet, to be his second bottom slave. And Jesus washed their feet. Now then, he did it because their feet were dirty, they needed to be washed, and he did it to show that a Christian, a follower of Christ, should stoop to the lowest needs of people. But a ceremony of washing feet was not what he was after. The equivalent today would be to go and wash each other's cars out there, because that's the bit that got dirty on the way here. 
Do you see? And by slavishly copying a practice, we've missed the principle and turned into a ritual what was meant to be a real humbling of service to each other, however dirty the job that was needed. Well, now let's take 1 Corinthians 11, should women wear hats? And here's a typical example of where Christians have got all tangled up. Let's say, first of all, in 1 Corinthians 11, there's nothing at all about hats. The word doesn't occur. The word veil does, and yet that word only occurs once in the whole chapter. And the statement in which it occurs is this, women have been given long hair instead of a veil. There's not a single sentence that says women should wear a veil, much less a hat. It's actually about hair. And it says men's hair should be shorter than women's hair. And there's much about men having long hair as about women having short. In simple terms, the principle is that the person sitting behind you in church should know whether they're sitting behind a man or a woman. The deeper principle is that men and women are different because the real passage is not about hats or about hair, but about head. And it's simply the principles, when you look at a man, you should think of his head, but when you look at a woman, you should think of her hair. And that that clearly tells you the difference between men and women. And that as God is the head of Christ, Christ is the head of every man, and man is the head of woman. It's about heads and letting the head be visible in the case of the men by having short hair and letting the head of the woman be invisible by having longer hair. You see the, the principle? But the underlying principle is that in Christ we are still male and female. We haven't been neutered. We are still what God created us to be. And that when we worship God, we do not worship God as persons, but as men and women. And we are willing to accept what God made us. And that's why transvestism is condemned in the Bible. When men want to be like women and women want to be like men, this is a rebellion against what God has made us. And that when we worship God as creator, we come as his creatures and we let that difference be clearly seen. So that men are saying, I'm glad I'm a man, and a woman is saying, I'm glad I'm a woman. Praise God. We praise you together as men and women. Now in our society, our culture is saying, let's obliterate all differences between men and women. And that's creeping into the church and is causing havoc in the church right now where we do not accept what God has made us to be. So that the real principle is not hats or even hair. The real principle is heads. And a woman covers her head with her hair, a man uncovers his head so that he is seen as head and she is seen as hair and her glory is her hair. Now, do you see how we've got into the passage in perhaps a fresh way instead of saying, should women wear hats? We've gone to the principle, which the principle is headship. And that that is demonstrated openly in our culture in the most appropriate way. I was asked recently by an African, he said, in my country, women's hair is just as short as men. It can't be anything else. It just grows in tight little curls. What do we do? I said, then you must take the principle and say, how in church can we demonstrate clearly that we are men and women? We're not neutered persons. That's the principle. 
deep down, it's God who made us male and female in his own image. And our world is absolutely rebelling against that distinction which God made. And we need each other. Men and women are different. Thank God we're different. We need each other. We're complementary. We are of equal value and dignity and status in God's sight, but of different role and responsibility and function. And it's God who made that. And when we worship God, we are not neutered persons. We are men and women. And we're praising our Creator for making us so. And we thank God for each other. Now, how important that principle is. Because there at Corinth, as today, people were trying to obliterate all differences that God has put to give us variety, to give us complementarity, to give us beauty and romance. God didn't intend chauvinism, but he didn't intend chivalry. And, and God wants us to behave as men and as women and to worship him as men and as women. And we should do that freely and gladly. Say, God, thank you for making me what I am. There's the principle. But slavishly, oh, that woman came in without a hat. There are two wrong ways of applying 1 Corinthians 11, and I've seen them both in churches. Number one, to apply 1 Corinthians 11 to the body, but not the spirit. So a woman wears a hat, but she wears the trousers as well. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and I've seen women who wear hats faithfully in church who dominate their husbands, and they've applied the word to their body, but not to their spirit. Do you follow me? The opposite angle, the opposite extreme, is to apply it to your spirit, but not to your body. And that is crazy because we are bodies. Our spirits are in bodies. And that says, well, as long as my spirit acknowledges the headship of men, that's okay. No, you should reflect that in outward appearance. Because body is part of you, and we worship God with our body. That's a, to worship with, the, with a, our body is an acceptable sacrifice. So it applies to body and spirit that we accept the basic principle of headship and that we let that show outwardly so that people know we are men and women of God. Well, we'll close there because I've still got more to say about 1 Corinthians, but I thought I'd take that one example to show you how we can get into legalistic application of Scripture instead of getting behind it to what principle is Paul really applying here and how can we apply that principle today. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.